Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses, mentorship, and clinical discussion groups. We take a dive into the science of pain and injuries to provide you the frameworks, skills, and confidence to help people in musculoskeletal care reach their goals. I have a special edition today, a bit of a round table, triangular table discussion. Joined today by EP, PhD candidate, and the real MVP of the Knowledge Exchange, Brendan Mowat, and EP, educator, managing director, and OG of the biomechanics and the Knowledge Exchange, Luke Postlethwaite. So gentlemen, thank you both for joining. Thanks, mate. It's good to be on the podcast again. It's been a while. Thanks, buddy. Looking forward to this. Today, we're going to have a discussion on our values, a bit of epistemology, or the, the what, the why, the how of our current stances and beliefs, and clarify the kind of healthcare professionals, coaches, business owners, education facilitators that we strive to be, especially as a business that offers continuing education, professional development, and mentorship we feel it's important to clarify what's most important to us and be transparent about our underpinning philosophies that influence the way that we practice and how we can help other clinicians and other businesses practice. In our bubbles of private healthcare practice, there can be some animosity and silos around clinical practice, and we can be easily divided by fusion to our identities, which can lead to backfire and some unhelpful arguments if you ever come across them on Twitter or social media in general. Now, this critical thinking and the questioning is part of how we can grow and adapt. And at the same time, by us clarifying our values and some of the definitions of some buzzwords, hopefully we can clear some misunderstandings and encourage a bit more collaboration and, and shared meaning because all of us, in this healthcare industry are here to to help people so Brendan and Luke is there anything that you wanted to touch on before we kick off with some definitions no not at all I think that that's yeah really kind of sums up what we want to sort of talk about and I, th I think it's a conversation that I, I'd love to hear from other professionals as well to really kind of hear what drives them and what their underpinning philosophies and assumptions are, where, where they come from, because I think that starts to set that really nice ground for us to have conversations that aren't about identity, that are about actually, you know, where, where is it these people are coming from that may have an opposing view and what is the common ground so that we can kind of move our professions forward in, in a really healthy way that, that minimises the, the anxiety that comes with a lot of the animosity and debates in healthcare. Absolutely. If we can find out what our definitions are, the, the what, we can better understand where people are coming from. And it's so easy for us to kind of talk over each other, especially through social media. So yeah, I'm keen to first of all, cover the buzzword evidence-based practice. And how would we define a science-based way of practice and a biopsychosocial approach. I think these are some, there are some common misunderstandings out there. And sometimes these, these terms are misconstrued into particular treatments or methods um, or 
perhaps even blended together. So how would we first of all define some of these? So potentially we could start with what is biopsychosocial practice. And I think I see this can go wrong in two main ways. So one is when the idea of biopsychosocial practice is that everyone who comes in needs to be spoken to about their sleep, diet, and other factors that contribute. And that's biopsychosocial practice, just highlighting those, those main contributors. And I don't think many people that have been listening to this podcast fall into that, that category. The second part where I think it can go a little pear-shaped is where it's something that we do to someone. So there's like a non-biopsychosocial practice versus a biopsychosocial practice, like it's some sort of modality or treatment pathway. To clarify that biopsychosocial practice care is anything, any interaction is biopsychosocial. And so when it's called out as, oh, we're being biopsychosocial in nature, it's like, what are we referring to when we say that? And I think what we're saying to that is really listening to that person's story and appreciating the potential contributors as opposed to something that we do to someone. So I know that may be very clear, but it's something that I hear in narratives that I, I think get confused that biopsychosocial practice is something that's done to someone. And well, I mean, this is like something that's, I think, quite topical at the moment from a few different spaces in terms of like even the inactive approach that sort of Peter Stilwell and Catherine Harmon have sort of written about more recently in relation to pain and treatment of pain conditions, where the limitations or the maybe the misrepresentations of the biopsychosocial model have become a little bit more highlighted, where we do use it or I think largely it's been interpreted in a way where we, we do look at going, okay, you know, what's the biological implications here? What are the psychological factors and what are the social factors? So it's like this trichotomy of factors in which we then go and treat in quite a reductionistic sort of way. So it, it, it's taking like the biomedical model and expanding to other silos that we can go and treat which is great that we're, you know, at least putting some emphasis on that. But at the same time, when we sort of look at the literature around the biopsychosocial model and, and the philosophy behind it, it, it really describes this phenomena where we always have these biopsychosocial experiences, whereby every experience that we have or every interaction that a patient has with us is going to be biopsychosocial. Every experience they have with an injury or pain or whatever it might be that they're dealing with has biological implications. Their thoughts and their sense-making associated with that is represented by physiological processes and cascades. And they are always within an environment at the same time that they are trying to engage with and, and act upon. And that is represented once again in, you know, biological uh, manifestations and, you know, psychological thoughts. So these things are always happening at any one time and we can't separate them. So it, it really is like this inactive approach that's now being discussed as this beyond the biopsychosocial is about just reconceptualizing these misconceptions about the biopsychosocial model. And we're like, hey, we are treating people here. And these people, you know, are having complex experiences that we don't really understand that well when it comes 
to the science and we're, you know, we're trying really, really hard on the science front, but we've got to sort of do our best to, to treat them as the whole person and not one little part of it. And I think that's one of the strong things that where we come from is how do we, you know, at no point are we negating that biology, biological factors are, aren't important or psychological factors aren't important but we're suggesting that they're all really, really important to consider. And there's no point in actually completely separating them. Yeah, we, we can do assessments. We can assess biology and some social things and you know, with, with certain outcome measures. But at the end of the day, an experience is subjective. And we're trying to use objective measures to measure something that's subjective. And so there's limitations there. And so we've really kind of got to think about it a bit differently if we're going to help these people and unpack the issues that they're living with and dealing with, and it's because it's not going to be the same as the last person that walked through the door with the exact area of symptoms and description of, of, of their symptoms. I feel like it's moving away from a protocol-based way of, of practicing or diagnosis-based way of practicing and, and acknowledging, as you guys said, that we can't separate the different components and to separate them would almost make the, the patient become less whole, less, less human. We're, we're treating a, a symptom, we're treating a, a condition, a disease, and we forget that there's a person attached to that painful body part. I feel like the BPS approach is more of the, the philosophy and the guide and like the lens, the framework that we see things through, as opposed to a, an intervention that's targeted at lifestyle factors, sleep, stress. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it does have space to, to kind of capture, you know, specific diagnoses as well, because there are times and places where that does change what's going on. And we've got some evidence for some protocols to be, you know, more helpful than others in, in, in some cases. But I think one of the challenges we have is that when we do take away, like you said, Dan, like a lot of these protocols and rules and actually listen to this person and go, all right, wow, this is, there is complexity here to this person's experience and, and their life and their circumstances, that it is scary to take away people's protocols and for them to really kind of sit back and now start to facilitate different experiences with, with, with their you know the people seeking their help so yeah I, I can see why it's daunting and scary as well i wonder then how we can tie in the concept of being science based because um we hear say evidence based my the picture the model in my mind has the, the evidence-based funnel where we first of all look at the high quality evidence surrounding particular conditions based on the presentation, the person, the case in front of us. And we filter that through our, our own clinical judgment and experiences. And then we have a shared decision-making towards the end with the, the main person involved, the center of all this, the, the patient, the client, to then offer some interventions to, to help. So there's a kind of a filtering system and there are probably some misconceptions there. So perhaps the idea is being less wrong rather than having a correct answer. I think there's a misconception that science provides definite answers. And the, the process is instead, it provides us a, a map, a bit of a guide as to what is perhaps more likely to help. So it's there's a bit of game of probability there, but it, it doesn't provide the answers. So to say that 
there is only one way to practice if you're evidence-based again is another misconception evidence-based medicine if, if we're to give it a bit of a, a definition first we can talk about how it aims to apply the best available evidence gained from the scientific method to medical decision making it seeks to assess the strength of evidence of the risks and benefits of treatments, including lack of treatment and diagnostic tests. So there's a part there, but there's also a part when we talk about it in clinical practice where we've got our own experiences, the things we see, the things that we've you know, seen help potentially or, or not work so well. And they culminate to be a part of you know, your evidence base that you could be using in your evidence-based practice. So science-based practice sort of builds on from that to some extent as well. And so I want to just read out this little passage from sciencebasedmedicine.org. Evidence-based medicine is a vital and positive influence on the practice of medicine, but it has its limitations. Most relevant to this blog is the focus on evidence to the exclusion of scientific plausibility. The focus on evidence has its utility, but fails to properly deal with medical modalities that lie outside the scientific paradigm or for which the scientific plausibility ranges from very little to non-existent. So it starts to suggest that we need to, even with those experiences that we see and the modalities and treatments we use, that we kind of go back to you know, actual concepts of science. Does this actually have scientific plausibility in the way that we think it works or the way that it's working? Is there something else that kind of explains what we're observing? And I think that's kind of quite a distinct, important factor for us to consider when we are looking at our own previous experience. It's not to say it's not important and it's not really, really vital to being a great practitioner or a good practitioner, but there are limitations and where we are prone as humans to having sort of a lot of logical fallacies that we're unaware of that lead us to drawing false conclusions or, or false premises to why things might be occurring. And that can be very problematic, I think, at times. And we also don't have necessarily the ability to measure harms in a treatment or in an interaction as well. So I think it's just kind of building on the evidence base a little bit more. I think um, my, my fear about what you just mentioned there is it's like, okay, so if science base is the application of, of, of the scientific method and evidence base is the available evidence. And if, if one of those omits the other one, for example, there's no evidence that suggests my new technique of bleeding people is not effective, but there is previous evidence that leaching doesn't work for flu and cutting people. I don't know what they used to do in the 1800s, but it was various techniques of bleeding people with cups and knives and leeches and whatnot. But now I've invented this new special Wi-Fi connected slow bleeding technique for the flu, but there's nothing that disproves it. Is that, do you think that's part of the problem where, or, or could be part of the problem where we can just use that on being evidence-based or then oh no it's scientific but you know what i mean see see how they they both need to be together to be evidence-based or to be scientific you need both to interplay and look at the implications of both on each other 
Yeah, absolutely. And from everything that I've sort of read on that, you know, science-based medicine isn't replacing evidence-based medicine. They're sort of one in the same. It just kind of emphasizes some of those neglects and shortcomings of just solely evidence-based practice, which I think you're sort of alluding to there, Luke, with, with your example. It's like, because there's no evidence, I can suggest anything without considering the plausibility based on the available evidence and then the plausibility of basic science. I'm hearing there's there's a need for a treatment, an intervention or a narrative that we have to make sense based on biology, chemistry, physics, biological plausibility. There's also an idea that if something is no better or has no benefit over sham, there's, there's no evidence for it. And there's also the risks and the costs involved or the harms, as we mentioned, to take into consideration. So it's a combination of all those factors. Yeah. So I, th I think it's probably not completely accurate to say, you know, that there's no benefits from even a sham. Like we see an effect occur when we, when we provide shams, but we use shams because we know that there's no specific treatment, like there's no specific effect, but there are non-specific physiological responses here that, that are occurring during that when we do see those effects occur. So it's not to say that, but I think that's kind of like that nice example of why sometimes we do see really great things in clinical practice, but then the evidence might not actually support what we're doing. And so here we've got some, we are still practicing evidence-based medicine perhaps with these definitions, but potentially not really practicing science-based medicine. When we're going to go, you know, what are the, what's the plausibility of this? You know, are, are we just eliciting a really clever, well-orchestrated placebo? Do we have better ways of doing that that may not have certain harms associated with it? Because I think it's not about just that session there, but there, there are potential harms for further on down the track to what that person thinks they need or how they engage with healthcare in the future and what they expect and demand and all of those factors too. So I think are important considerations that we probably don't consider as much in clinical practice in a, when we're seeing patients one-on-one. -on -one. Just acknowledging the very real non-specific effects when it comes to an interaction with a, another human and the expectancy effects and how our delivery of the intervention can impact the treatment effects, natural history, regression to the mean, all these factors are involved we're mindful of the perhaps limitations of interventions and we can't be so confident with direct causal links based on this understanding of, of science-based, evidence-based practice. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it now kind of comes to that question then, you know, why are you doing what you're doing with that individual and why you, um, what, what function does it serve? And I think that's sort of something that one of the philosophies that underpins where we kind of come from as well. And Dan, I'm, I'm keen to hear some of your thoughts here as well on functional contextualism. So that's something we talk about a bit, but do you want to kind of just maybe explain a little bit about what that is? Definitely. So the new buzzword to add to all our current buzzwords is functional contextualism. It's a framework based on pragmatism and 
radical behaviorism. So that the idea that all behaviors or interventions serve a particular function depending on the individual and depending on the context. So a simple way of going about it is, is a particular intervention working and helpful for a client for moving them towards their goals? It makes room for all these factors, how the treatment effects can be largely nonspecific and they emerge from all this dynamic interplay between us, the clinician, the interventions, the context, and all our interactions in between. And the, the focus is less on what the intervention is, but more on what's the purpose of the intervention. So a useful way of, or one of the reasons why this framework is so useful is we can be easy to judge a intervention as uh, helpful or unhelpful or good or bad without looking at the human, the interaction, the other perhaps arguably bigger rocks involved in that treatment effect, the, the surrounding context, what was happening before that treatment, what were the, the consequences of that treatment, uh, for example, if someone's experiencing neck pain every time they, they sit for a long time at home, working from home, there are factors involved within that experience of pain and there's a narrative involved within that experience. So if we were to provide them an intervention of, of stretching based on their understanding of having tight muscles, there can be a, a short-term temporary hyperalgesia, a bit of distraction, and there can be a, a treatment effect that can serve to reinforce that narrative of my neck is tight. Now, the intervention cannot be separated from the context within that individual. The same intervention can be used on a different individual with similar presentation of symptoms, but has a completely different effect because they had a, a different set of expectations prior there was a different interaction there was less rapport building there was less trust building within that interaction and suddenly this one intervention that worked for this other client has a completely different effect so it's a framework to perhaps more so simplify the interventions into whether one is individually relevant for someone within their context and acknowledging that all these factors can have all these other influences that maybe that's where we need to spend a bit more time in upskilling, in that communication, in that rapport building, in, in the shared decision-making processes, rather than just focusing on the interventions as tools or prescribing stretching to everyone with neck pain or prescribing deadlifts to everyone with back pain. Yeah, I think you summed that up really well, Dan. I think it's nice. One, one, it kind of helps explain why we see such different effects to the exact same treatment in people, even when they're sort of you know, like our sham trials, how some people respond really well and other people don't, because that context for them, given even they might be in that same clinical room, having the exact same treatment by the same clinician, respond completely differently as well. And it also helps us, I think, move away from you know a, a treatment being right or wrong necessarily but for us to kind of work in this science-based practice for one so you know having that underpinning what we do and what we help facilitate but 
rather there's times when certain treatments for one person may be important to use at that point in time or may, may serve a function if we to use that same language in that context for their needs and other times it may not you know for, for another person in a slightly different context one thing i was going to jump in there brendan and, and add because you touched on it twice now which is this not being a right or a wrong treatment or interaction that's so emotive and so absolute there's no no option for middle ground and so potentially this idea that it was less relevant in that situation or more relevant or the the meaning to that patient was more ambiguous versus it being really specific to their situation or that it was open for interpretation or it was really considered for those like those really terrible here but like verbs or adjectives <laughs> can't even tell a blanked compared to these like right wrong emotive bad versus good treatments or bad versus good interactions or good or bad practitioners or hands-on or hands-off talking about the relevance the ambiguity that it may create for that person or how considered it is for that person's situation at the time is what my interpretation of what functional contextualism describes exactly and to to add on that it's it's highlighting that there's it's more than just that intervention it's more than just a we're not reducing someone's pain to this is the tool this is this will fix your your pain it's more than just that pain sensation or that that diagnosis where at but at the same time we're aware that we're not justifying any single treatment with this and hence why we need the underpinning value of being science-based and we're not just going with anecdotal evidence because that means anything can work i completely agree i think it's really interesting but i think it leads now to that idea that all right so if if all of these factors this person's context matters their their history their expectations what they're kind of going through what they're expecting all that sort of stuff like that's a lot of information and and i think this is where sort of we need to get really comfortable with good person-centered communication because if we can't elicit this information we we can't you know, even begin to scratch the surface on what is their context? How, how, what are they experiencing right now to be able to start to help facilitate their re-engagement into life or, you know, into activities that they may not be able to do anymore or whatever it might be to determine what, what treatments or what strategies or whatever it might be is going to be relevant and functional for that person at that time. Can you give us your best definition, either Daniel or Brendan, if I don't mind, of patient-centeredness or person-centeredness? Because my interpretation online is there is a variance in interpretation of what that means. There is. There's been quite a lot of papers written discussing this idea and trying to come up with a consensus and then it ends up, you know, person-centered practice can be then spoken about as patient-centered practice or family-centered practice or, or whatever it might be it kind of gets thrown around in, in some different if different terms from my reading um there's a publication in bmj by moira stewart and she talked about 
five kind of components to person-centered care that was sort of evident sort of at that point. And I, I can read it out if, if that's helpful. And it was basically patients want, and, and there's you know some good evidence that patients want this as well, which is I think really quite cool. Patients want patient-centered care, which firstly explores the patient's main reason for the visit, their concerns and need for information. All right, so that really kind of talks to what I was just speaking about there. B, seeks an integrated understanding of the patient's world, that is their whole person, emotional needs and life issues. C, finds common ground on what the problem is and mutually agrees on management. I think the key word here is mutually because I think we do have training and experience. And so once again, coming to back to science-based practice, we've got information here. It's not necessarily all about, you know, and, and this definitely isn't what person-centered practice is. And there's a few papers on this specifically. It's not about just doing whatever the person wants. It's about mutually coming to an agreement. So kind of facilitating that conversation, listening, and then kind of going, look, would you like to know a little bit more about that? Or what is it you know about that? Can I fill in some of those gaps? And having this you know, two-way communication to kind of start to facilitate with these principles that we've been talking about so far. D, enhances prevention and health promotion. And E, enhances the continuing relationship between the patient and the practitioner. So making sure that they have the support that they need and that it's a healthy re relationship and that it is two ways. It is that person-centeredness. So that's kind of how I view person-centered care. And there's obviously a lot of nuance in that as well. I like the terminology person-centered care over patient-centered care because I think it's just in itself just reduces a bit of that hierarchical component of the patient practitioner sort of relationship as well. But I mean, that's could be semantics, who knows? But to me, I feel like that it's helpful to just think about it that way. Yeah, I can see where perhaps when discussing certain cases and respecting confidentiality, that might be helpful to maintain that talking about patients or giving more of the, the impersonal viewpoint. However, I totally agree that the, the term patient already creates a bit of a power imbalance. And that's another factor involved in, in being person-centered. We're acknowledging that there is that power imbalance in, within the context of healthcare. And then it's the idea that clients, people, humans can play a role as a patient, that there's something wrong with them, that something's broken and they need medical service. And that can fit under the very much the traditional biomedical framework of, of practicing. So I see the person-centered ways, respecting their autonomy, respecting that they're a whole person. They have valid reasons for doing everything that they're doing currently to manage their pain and making it about their goals and less about my interventions or my knowledge or my personal experience as well. It's, it's listening to understand rather than fix or rather than just purely try and figure it out. We're more listening to validate and holding that space for the person. And then it's a, in terms of the practical way, I, I use very much a motivational interviewing framework where we, we dance around the continuum of following and really supporting the person and then directing them sometimes 
but mostly staying in the middle to, to guide, to coach, to nudge, to facilitate rather than just acting passively and doing whatever they want or acting paternalistic and telling them what they should do, like we're the authority figure and we're, we're the decision maker. Are there times, Dan, where you find that you do need to be a little bit more paternalistic? Do you have patience yourself where you find that actually you do need to be a little bit more directive? There is a, a skill to, to navigate that because there are instances where we discuss in some of our courses where someone might not have the capacity to make a decision based on their individual circumstances. Their, their cup might be full. And we, we discuss some particular cases that can come up. Uh, for instance, when an athlete is overly stressed and they've got other priorities, and if we involve them in every single little decision-making process in their training program, that's already they're overwhelmed. And we've probably built enough rapport and we've gotten an understanding of who they are and how they respond to certain training stimuli. And we can make an educated guess with their permission to maybe progress a certain exercise or, or training program. And this is an important factor where we're not avoiding the need sometimes to direct a person's level of care. And it, it really depends on the context. I can see another example is in the public healthcare system. If we were to have that shared decision-making already, that's might take an extra five minutes and doctors, specialists, allied health professionals in that space already are overworked and don't have the time or the capacity, or there might be some issues with translation, um, language barriers, other socioeconomic barriers to facilitating that shared decision-making. So I can see where, depending on the context, we might need to be a bit more directive. I think that the main component is ensuring that we've respected their autonomy and we've respected that they need some, we need some consent from them within that decision-making process. What I'm kind of like hearing you like what we're coming back to is once again, this idea of functional contextualism. So does it serve a function to, you know, to behave in this certain way with this individual, be more directive or whatnot? Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that then? Yeah. It's um, what's the purpose is the question. So, that's a very helpful question for us to self-reflect on why we choose certain ways of practicing or, or why we've recommended the recommendations that we've made, why we've prescribed exercise. And it just keeps us accountable to the process and makes it more about the person within their context and how each intervention really depends. I think um, the blanket statement that I'm, it's a bit of a trigger word for me is that context matters. Of course, context matters. It always matters tell me a, a time when it doesn't matter. So I think this framework allows for this nuance to be explained in a clearer way. Yeah, absolutely. And so then when it comes to like other topics, then sticking to this sort of theme at the moment, like in terms of rebooking and so on, you know, I mean, I mean, in a perfect world, everyone would come in and we'd see them for one session and they walk out strong fit fixed and great and no burden on healthcare systems and things would be, be great but obviously that that's not the case and it's also definitely i mean from from our courses and whatnot what not what we you know suggest should be done by any means but i think it kind of comes back to you know what does rebooking serve as a function dependent on this context 
this person's in. So if someone's there, they are a bit worried about what's going on or they don't know exactly what, what the next few steps of the loading protocol are, you haven't been able to kind of get that, get to that stage yet. They just need some assistance. Perhaps there's other barriers to, to recovery, whatever it might be that, you know, depending on what the recovery is and that, that end point, what that thing is, then there is, I, I guess, a context there that rebooking serves a function. And there's other times when rebooking may not serve a function. I suggest, suggest early on with an acute injury, often, often it does. But it really does come down once again to that individual and their context and the function in which you know rebooking serves moving forward. Would you sort of kind of agree with that? And, and when we kind of think person-centered practice, it kind of comes back down to these same principles, Luke, Dan? Exactly. What what is the purpose of the rebooking is is the question. It's not so much how many sessions does someone need, because it depends. As an example, I spoke with Johnny from Biomechanics, physiotherapist. He sustained two ACL injuries, and I was curious as to how much support he had during that process. And he mentioned just a couple of sessions because he didn't really need it. Whereas ACL injuries, if we go with that protocol-based systematic approach, they would require a few more sessions for extra guidance and support. But however, in his context, based on his goals, based on his priors, based on his understanding, that may not have been necessary. So the rebooking is, is almost a surface level question and, and going a bit deeper as to what's the purpose of the rebooking for that person based on their goals. It will be essential to find out the person's underlying goals and where they are, their current capacity and where they want to be before we even chat about rebookings. I think I feel like rebookings at the very, very end of a consultation process rather than being a focal point. And Luke, I'm curious as to how you view rebookings and within the context of a business. Um, yeah, like we, the, the same. For me, rebookings is as required in the context of everything we've just discussed. And, you know, I, the people in my team, I trust. I trust that the reason they work with us is because I like their values. I like them as people. I trust that they have the patient's best interest in heart. It's not something that we measure as a business. Like Nucle throws up a statistic when you log in, you have no choice, it just does. It's not something that really influences anything that we do as, as a business. I've never performance managed anyone on rebookings. I've never looked at particular conditions and decided that this particular condition needs more sessions or less sessions. It doesn't hit my radar at all. In response to that, what would hit my radar if someone's calendar was always empty, I'd probably just go and see what's going on. Like one of my team members having a really shit time that I hadn't noticed is there's something else going on in their life. Are they not confident to rebook because they're having an existential crisis with their capacity to help someone? Like is their self-efficacy down? Have they just had a spate of EPCs with really low economic resources at disposal? Or have they just had a bunch of journeys through and it's just coincidence that their calendars thinned out over the month? Have they had three or four of their regular clients go on holidays? That's normally the answer. It's not normally because they're practicing terrible. Yeah, uh, I don't know how to answer it any other way, apart from I don't really care about it that much. 
it's just one of those things that happens as a result of the interaction between a couple, the clinician and the, the person. I can imagine that might make it a little bit difficult for, for instance, new grads getting into private practice. We, we like our methods. We like our systems. We like certainty. Oh yeah. Like it's not easy being a new grad in our business. Uh, there's not many rules at all. Like you really do have to find your way. And I, I feel like that's important because I feel like, Honestly, and this is maybe just a reflection of my personality trait. When rules are applied to me, I want to know what happens when I break them. When your mum says, don't touch the stove, it's hot. You go and touch the stove when she's not looking. I think you also have to go through that process of learning what you do and don't like and what does and doesn't work for you. Like, to give you an example of that, we tried a process where we made all of our team go and visit GPs. And some people were really good at it and some people were bloody terrible at it. And that's not a reflection of them as a person. That was me applying without considering this functional contextualism that everyone needs to see a GP to get busy because it had worked for me at a point in my career. So everyone should do that as opposed to what do you feel comfortable in doing to generate some leads and some interest in you as a practitioner? How do you think that if you are turning through patients relatively quickly because you're having great results and you're providing a lot of home support or whatever the, reason is that their, their calendar has thinned out at that point in time you know what do you feel comfortable doing or what do you think is most effective like this idea that i need to solve the problem before it exists and then apply it to someone i think is is backwards just to kind of add to that like i, I think there's a part where our team you know they don't have a huge amount of rules but i, I think we really try and aim to kind of help support that as well so it's so it's not that there's a lack of support but allowing them to kind of navigate the, the unknowns because there is so much uncertainty, so many unknowns, but it's also such an exciting industry as well in what we do. So having some support to kind of navigate that, I think is also really important and, you know, having good mentors and so on also. Look, as a business owner and a business owner who's been one for 10 years or more now, I'm still faking it till I make it like there's some stuff I've learned along the way and there's there's some definite warning flags that I'm quicker at picking up on, but it's kind of like when you're a new grad, you're not really sure what you're doing and you just start trialing stuff and you start to build your own evidence base. And yeah, there's some really cool resources out there to help you get there quicker, but there's no rule book on running a business. You know, we, we have two clinics that essentially run the same, but they don't at all because they're in two to to totally different socioeconomic demographics. And it changes the rules completely. And so to blanket apply a rule from one clinic to the other, it just doesn't work. And so then to apply a rule to a different personality probably isn't going to work either. It's a discussion, just like with your patient. It's the same argument about trying to apply a modality to a patient as it is trying to apply a modality or a set of rules or KPIs to your team members. It creates the same non-person-centered approach to problem solving. And every team member has their own stuff, problems, barriers. Maybe it's, we need more technical skills over here. Maybe it's, we need more person-centered communication. Maybe it's more, they're terrible at doing their paperwork or they're procrastinators. And like, it's different for everyone as to why certain problems arise. And to go in there going, I've been measuring these six things for 10 years and this is why you're having problems. I don't, I don't know. I think we'll, we'll touch on 
what are some of those metrics of success uh, a little bit later i just wanted to to close off the the idea of of the the rebookings and i can see the similarities with person-centered approach for for clients as well as a person-centered or individualized approach to a clinician and that's one of the values that underpin my clinical mentoring when i when i have someone coming in with their individualized problems their their own stories as to why their, their own meanings attached to it common themes would be i'm not good enough for my clinic i can't keep up with the kpis and it's a tough challenging space to to be in when it feels like the system's against us and just navigating that that space is is the way forward for for us i think having some of these conversations is vital and again if i was to apply the same protocol or, or system for one person in in their clinic within their specific socioeconomic context it wouldn't fit with another clinician so having that person-centered approach is is i feel the same whether we're treating a client or working with clinicians mentoring them or or helps us consider the bigger picture there was this quote that i heard from pete to pre and it was you find what's unacceptable and get the fuck out of the way and you know i think within our culture business team i think everyone knows what does and doesn't work from a overarching sky high view of the business everyone knows what needs to happen i, I define or the business defines what's acceptable from a moral standpoint what we're prepared to do and not do as far as leveraging or you know anything that i would consider to be not healthcare focused and then get get out the way provide support when when asked so on that then luke and brennan and, and all of us before we ask about how we measure our performance i think it'd be helpful to find out what are our, some of our values and how we define success in clinical practice. I feel like with my personal value that I try and uphold, that I don't do a perfect job every single time is trying to be humble when it comes to uh, the success of a, a client, making it about them, not about me. And that process helps when I'm thinking about how I measure success because it frees me up from taking full responsibility for a, a person's journey navigating the healthcare space. And this gives me the, the freedom to know that it, there's other factors outside of my control. And perhaps that's a, one of the influences of increasing symptoms of, of clinic, clinician burnout in this day and age. So keen to hear your thoughts on, on values and, and success. It's a, defining it, I think, is the first thing. Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit to i guess our values perhaps as you know the knowledge exchange and what we try and achieve and stand by for for our educational courses and there's a few parts to it but on on this as well i think it is important too because there is some literature around person-centered practice once again just to go back to what we we're just talking about and how to create a really good person-centered culture is being really clear on your vision and your mission as well. So I, th I think it's just kind of nice that's kind of tied in in this way as well. But I think what one of our big values is, is curiosity. And that is getting people 
clinicians engaged in wanting to know more, learn more and question things, question their own practices, their own thinking and you know what they've been taught in the past and where it's come from. And it's not to be deemed as, as a negative thing by anything to, to question, but I think healthy reflection and criticism is exactly how we've come to know what we know, how we've got so much out of things like science and how we've built the society we have is by constantly reflecting and building upon that. So I think one of the things we try and do is, is help instill curiosity, but also embody that ourselves and be curious about learning more and knowing more. And, and that's one of my personal values as well. And why I've went back after my master's to go and do another master's of research and a PhD, because it was just like, there's so many questions. There's so many things I want to learn about science and, and the limitations to the way that we think as human beings. So I think that's a big part of it. Another is integrity. So sort of our moral principles and being kind of clear on those honesty, like you said, Dan, humility. And that's something that occasionally I think that that's a value that you kind of got to bring up every now and again in our industry to not claim the, the wins as our own, but to be really kind of proud about how people are, are thriving and maybe acknowledging that, hey, maybe at times we have a little bit of a role in facilitating a part of their journey. And that that's really, really cool. But to kind of respect our own biases and not owning someone else's learnings. And I think that's, that's a big part of it for us as well. Challenge. So challenging the norms are things that we've kind of potentially just, just taken for granted. We haven't questioned before or, or have assumed to be a truth where it may not be. And, and to kind of challenge these and bring up the discussions about, about those. I think that's kind of a part of what we like to do as well. And that can be really uncomfortable at times for people, but trying to do that once again, in line with our other values of promoting curiosity and having that humility which we might not always be great at doing at times perhaps, but we definitely endeavor for that. And then lastly, science. So sort of staying up to date and being really open to being wrong. And I think one of the big things that we say in virtually every course is we reserve the right to change our minds at any point in time where we're kind of exposed to new research or evidence that suggests that the way that we're viewing or perceiving reality may may not be the most accurate depiction of the world and that we need to continue to evolve with that as well. And so that, that's kind of like the real underpinning things, I think, that drive us to do what we do and, and why I don't view health practice the same as I did six months ago, let alone a year, let alone 10 years ago. Definitely share the self-awareness of, of knowing our, our kind of limitations and this practice what we're doing now with clarifying our values is something that I wish I'd, I did earlier I feel as a clinician it's easy to get sucked into the world and have our own perceptions of our identity and I definitely fused myself with the identity of being a, an exercise prescriber so when I was encountering some evidence that went against my bias I would have that visceral reaction and that backfire effect but now with embracing and, and trying to embody that value of being humble, of being wrong, maybe even normalizing the discomfort that happens when we are uncertain, when we're uncomfortable, when perhaps we, we make some mistakes. I think that's where the most growth can occur for us. 
and again back to the the issue of, of burnout because it's just so prevalent with my work as a as a mentor it always comes up i i notice when we tie ourselves to that identity or our interventions and then when something doesn't go the way we expected we name it as failure and i definitely shared that so i i definitely remember feeling quite defensive i would place the, the blame and shame myself for when something perhaps didn't go wrong the reality is that by embodying that humility and the knowledge that that curiosity to learn a bit more and to know that there's so many of these other factors as we've touched on the reality that people can get back into their goals and back to life in different ways for different reasons it can help me take a step back and fulfill that role as a coach rather than a fixer being aware of that writing reflex and guiding and not owning that the person's inherent ability and strengths to change yeah absolutely and i, I think there's you know a, a point that you raised early on just that knowing your values and being clear on that and i think that's what you know speaks you know i wish i i did that as a new grad like straight out you know get so clear on your values because anytime you feel a little bit lost or you've got a decision to make you can go back to those and that can really help refocus and, and help with that decision making i found anyway so that's an important part and and even more recently where there's been a lot of sort of um debates and discussion about certain topics it's nice to kind of go back to and it's like what do we stand for how do we respond to this and and i think that's been really helpful it's always helpful to go back to the why behind why we practice in the first place i think we can get so stuck in the weeds of being right or being wrong and having this maybe some dichotomies of what is evidence-based or not evidence-based and and get stuck on these debates that are largely unhelpful because we forget that we're all in the same boat to help people and we perhaps make it more about ourselves in this process and less about the people that we help probably do well for us all to kind of make an assumption that the next practitioner we don't agree with probably is just as caring about their patients and their outcomes as, as what we are. And I think that's probably a good standing point, but I don't think there's many practitioners out there that aren't empathetic, caring practitioners as well. Just doesn't mean that we rest on our laurels and stop reflecting and i think that that's probably the key point here that we continually do that and we do try and hold each other accountable that we do bring up these issues but we don't do it in a personal way we do it about the ideas and the concepts because it's not about our identity unless you identify as that treatment type or that whatever that's been discussed about then you might probably feel that backfire effect of that cognitive dissonance and i know it's definitely a problem i've had in the past as well um, with my manual therapy training and also being an exercise physiologist when you know anyone hangs shit on exercise i was kind of really feeling quite defensive straight away and you know anything against mulligan techniques i'd have you know quite a, a visceral response early on but as it turns out it's actually got nothing to fucking do with me it's really to do about the people seeking my help so all i can do is reflect on that and see is the information that's giving me this visceral response actually better information come from a better source than what I was currently using to inform my internal model of the world? And if I can achieve that reflection, 
and I've got the ability to now update to better help people. I think that's brilliant. So anytime I feel that cognitive dissonance now, that discomfort, like I'm being challenged, I really try and take that as an opportunity to reflect and look to understand where, where someone else is coming from and why they see the things that they see, even if it seems a little bit batshit crazy to me at first. Perhaps it would be useful to, to tie in, so after this discussion of the kind of clinicians that we want to be, what we stand for, our, our whys, then when it comes to the reality of, of owning a business, how do we then have some markers and how do we maybe measure the, this process to still be able to practice according to our values whilst also respecting the, the constraints for building, maintaining, growing a, a business. So for instance, for me, knowing the, the number of people I need to see to break even, that's important from a financial, from a business perspective. And knowing about follow-ups. So after discharging, I try and embody that, that care and following up with people with communication rather than just leaving them out into the open. And these are some of the processes that that I found helpful and Luke as an actual business owner with, with teams and employees, as opposed to me, a sole practitioner, what's, what are some of those performance measures and how would you go about it? Such a big question, uh, because it comes back to what you asked before, like what, are, how do you define performance? Uh, are you defining your performance as regards to uh, you know, how utilitarian the business is, as in how much good are you creating? Are you measuring yourself on the ability to provide equal opportunity to patients? Are you measuring yourself on staff satisfaction? Are you measuring yourself on money? And each of those create a completely different focus, action, response, measurement, the, the whole thing. But for, for the, the problem or the thing that I think you're alluding to, it's like as a practitioner, how, how can you know that you're doing enough essentially so it makes sense from a business sense so that potentially you could get away from measuring yourself on things like how many times am I seeing people, do I need to see someone more to fill my calendar, et cetera. That then becomes just about basic math and it's, it's really simple for most people. You, you work out what your cost is to the business with some sort of application to overheads. So there's a component of business that includes rent and reception and phone bills and electricity and rates and outgoings and all that, that type of thing. And that's divvied up between the number of people within the business. And, you know, that essentially would lead to some sort of break-even figure and then a total cost to the business. And then the total business cost has to exceed that. And then you look at the people who, uh, income generators to the business are the people doing the work that brings the money in and divvy that up by the number of people. And you've got a, a rough, rough and ready figure to work out how many hours you, you all need to divvy up to get there. And then that might be something as simple as, you know, I'm here on a full-time arrangement at 38 hours, but at, you know, 28 hours, the business hits a break even figure and the business may have some profit goals in the magnitude of break even. I don't think anyone's got goals to run at a loss, but break even to, you know, two, 1%, 4%, 10%. That I, I doubt there's many businesses going much above 10% in our world. 
there may be well-established businesses that own their premises, their, their overheads are lower, et cetera. Older businesses tend to be more systemized and have a lot more automation built in, et cetera. And, and I can't speak to those, but my experience with small businesses as they're growing and team sizes are in that two to 30, there's not a lot of margin. Um, definitely not like when you're selling a product with 40% markup on it, et cetera. That's a really easy, rough and ready to do it. The other thing is where you work may already have an expectation on how full the calendar needs to be. You may want to have a, if you're not happy with how that's being measured, you can have a conversation about how can we achieve the same thing being measured on something else and then a time frame and to allow the transition. Yeah, not next week. Change just tends to not happen that quickly. That could be a way of doing it. But I think there's more to, I think there's too much focus on just calendar utilization, not enough focus on other contributors that team members bring to cultures. You know, I can speak an example in my business where Karina basically runs the show. Michael's looking after the team performance and satisfaction. I've got Gianni, who you spoke to today, doing more of the social media stuff. And that provides value that doesn't directly lead to income. It all still needs to add, add up at the end of the day, but not just about how many clients are in your calendar. What else can these people bring to the team that may be better at it than you are that allows you to free up time or see some more patients or yourself? It, you know, th There's other options available. I don't think we need to be as binary as it can be what it made out to be. Yeah, there's um, examples. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Shut up now. Um, All three of us. <laughs> but some examples that I think that might be helpful is when following up. I think that's the thing that I really admire and, and definitely stole from you, Luke, and your business. The importance you place on feedback, on getting feedback, on getting word of mouth, on asking for word of mouth, so rather than perhaps feeling a, pressured on marketing and getting new people in. Yeah, we built a, a how to wow initiative in the business and it wasn't my idea it was one of the team members ideas and it's like how can we wow our patients how can we go above and beyond and we we found that every initial received a follow-up email now initially that was a whole laborious process that we've now streamlined into a almost pre-written thing where we just apply certain parts of their narrative into the paragraph where it fits and it feels highly tailored to that individual and it's got a bunch of resources so if someone comes in with chronic neck pain, there's some generic videos that can be sent to that person too, that most likely will elaborate on the narrative that's already been placed in the, the initial assessment to reinforce some of those ideas. That's one of the ways in which we can add value. You can also do follow-up calls, but I think that can be laborious and time consuming, especially if you do already have a full calendar to go and do 40 follow-up calls in a week or whatnot. That may not be sustainable going forth, but if you stop, and rather than looking at all the problems and look at solutions for those problems, you do end up with a better service overall. So rather than just going, oh, I don't have enough time to call people, it's like, well, then how can you provide that value in another way that costs you less time or no time? How can I, how can I automate a follow-up email? How can I automate my subjective kinesiophobia questionnaire and disability anxiety stress scales so that I don't lose that time consult. So I've got more time on education or exercise or whatever it may be. Um, you know, how can we build a system so that 
X, which is a problem for us, can be done in the same time rather than just this person needs to continue to come back, pay for something that I, if I stopped and thought about and as a team we developed a solution to. Because like, it may not be the case in all scenarios, but where our main practice is a, a lower socioeconomic demographic and it's not in the lowest, but it's lower. And price and ongoing commitment is a genuine fear before people have even seen us. They come in telling us that they don't want to be told to come back for 12 weeks. They come in acknowledging, oh, I'm you know, trying to rush their story out because they're, they're watching the clock from the get-go because they know that they can only afford one or two sessions with us or they haven't asked about any of the qualifications of the clinicians. They're asking about you know how much does a session cost. There are flags in which, okay, I may only have half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half over the course of this person's time with us. And that may not be enough for however they present. And so how do I still look to solve the exact same problem, irrelevant of how much money they bring to the business? That's the way I like to look at that. And it may be different for every business. So there's just a couple of examples of how we do it. I think some examples of solutions to to some of these problems are, is, is helpful and uh, what i'm hearing as well is that it's very individualized so the context that you're working in would change the kind of systems that you have so you would have different frameworks or different systems perhaps still with the same underlying values and and principles and the team culture and the reputation your brand however it would look completely different if you were in perhaps a higher socioeconomic status area yeah but i think so one of the biggest concerns for, for most patients is how much is this going to cost because people often recognize that their condition is due to being deconditioned that they have to do something about their condition or that it's complex in nature and does require a few treatments and, and the cost is a fear for them or you're recommending some sort of ongoing treatment modality at the end of your session, you, you've listened to the story, you've listened to the contextual factors and you truly do think that they need some help with some movement or whatever it may be, insert a theory here, that you've done your best as a, as a business owner or as a business to accommodate those people, in my opinion, right? And, and this is my hedonistic utilitarianism nature to try and create the greatest good for the, the most amount of people. And so it's like, Hey, we have option A, which is a clinical gym membership where we'll still write your program. We'll be floating around with other clients. So we'll still be able to look out the corner of our eye and tell you if you're doing anything dangerous, wrong, backwards, upside down, whatever it may be. But just know I can't guarantee I'll always be here, but these are the hours I work. And if you can get in here, here's one price point. And then up the other end of the spectrum, it's three sessions a week. And as long as you understand, this is not because you have to, it's because you appreciate accountability. And you want a time in your calendar to essentially outsource the thinking and the motivation to someone else and everything that falls in between that. I think it's also important to note that if you can't do these things, it doesn't make you unethical or wrong or any of those negative conditions. I think just being aware there's a problem and doing your best with the resources that you have available to you and the time that you have available to you. So I'm not suggesting that every sole practitioner who's in their first two months of private practice go out there and develop nine different revenue 
streams and service categories to accommodate the four patients that they've seen that week in their first week of trading. That's not what I'm suggesting, but being aware that for some people, price is a, a problem and how can you best patch those holes per se, for lack of a better, better analogy. Again, being transparent about your values as, as a business, the kind of mission statement as well is, is helpful and making sure that we, we embody that and all these examples within this context make it quite individualized when we talk about the concept of over-servicing and under-servicing and involving the, the clinician, the client, the, the context. And again, going back to well, what's the function of a session or, or rebookings and, and rather than going through and making blanket assessments on whether or not we are providing a service or not, because it, it depends. And, and in the end of the day, if we're empowering people to have some say in, in, in their healthcare journeys, it's, it's their choice. And we are just facilitators and coaches and, and guides, and we can provide as much support and accountability as, as they require. I think Brendan said earlier about understanding the person's world was, was one of the key things that the patients were after in, in relation to their, their treatment or whatnot. And I think that's so important to create that contextualization of what the person is after needing requires etc in context of financial constraints geographical constraints family constraints mental state physical access plans for themselves all the things and then trying to come up with a considered solution not a right solution or a wrong solution a considered most relevant specific is with that person sort of ties all those things together and, and then for someone in my position then you need to facilitate your team to be able to have the tools and the freedom and the autonomy to do that but then also have them understand what's not acceptable as a business based on the constraints and the, all the other influences that impact a business and then whilst allowing that freedom consider the team members staff satisfaction access to learning all the things that they need to thrive as well and it's, it's this constant balance of that's just looking at it from a like a, as a trichotomy and that there's more factors to it than that because that, think, that team member has a life and a world and yeah. goals I, I, and promotional you know aspirations i think that's that's really nice isn't it because i mean when we start to look at it through these lenses discussions like under-servicing and over-servicing be kind of, become kind of irrelevant. It's not the question that we're, we need to be asking so much if we are looking at this person's context, looking at all of these barriers, opportunities, and really hearing, you know, asking the right question, what is the actual problem here? And I think that can make a, make a big difference. It shouldn't be about hands-on or hands-off, right and wrong, or exercise no exercise or whatever it's it's so it's just not about that it's not relevant to actually the discussion when you when you look at it through this this lens when we so everyone comes upon their own moral compass in a really complex way but we're all very aware when we something crosses it or we're we're doing something in our pin in our our mind's eye that is immoral we're quite aware of that 
I heard this great conundrum the other day that I thought was amazing. So you're a doctor on an island and there's a big storm hit the island and there's two people stuck on the beach on one side of the island. And on the other side of the island, there's five people stuck on a beach. They have the choice. You can only save one of those groups of people. Now, which one do you choose? And so most people are, in Western culture are utilitarians. And so we'll choose to save the five because saving five people is more moral than just saving two. But what's really interesting is, so you're in your Jeep and you're driving to save those five people. Now you come across a collapsed bridge and there's someone stuck under the bridge. Now, if you stop to save that person stuck under the bridge, the people on the beach die. However, if you cross the bridge, you kill the person under the bridge to save the five. Now, if you cross the bridge, you kill the person, you still save five people to the expense of one. But all of a sudden it creates this real moral injunct that I didn't cause the two people on the other side to die. I just made a choice to save five over two. But now to cause one to die to save five, all of a sudden creates this really hard backlash and this moral wrong within us, even though the overall benefit is more if we still choose to continue on over that bridge and save those five people. And I think this is really interesting is that there's no right answer. You just need to really understand what it is that you value and what you're prepared to do in any situation. And I make terrible, terrible business decisions all the time, but they're great healthcare decisions in my mind. And that's just in reference to that trichotomy that I was discussing earlier. You know, I make terrible business decisions for the hope to improve team morale or, or I make terrible team morale decisions for healthcare and vice versa. And it's this constant play of understanding and reflecting on what it is that you value and understanding where your values come from that I think is really important. And that I think potentially can go missed early career because you come out trying to be right and to fit in and to get the treatment right and to please patients and to please your boss and move up the ladder and do PD. Like I just, yeah. Hopefully provided some inspiration for us going a bit deeper into how we've come to our current stances and how we're influenced. I can speak from my own methodologies definitely the role models role models such as yourselves during the learning process investing in in courses in continual professional development to to embody that value of curiosity is a another way and if we don't understand how we got to where we are at the moment we can perhaps not be aware of of where we might be blinded by our identities blinded by our backfire effects blinded by belonging to a certain tribe without questioning it perhaps some of the discussions that we're we're having first of all clarifying our, our whys might lead to more useful practical discussions maybe even framing some of these discussions through different lenses or at least awareness of our own philosophical bias and of our own lens and acknowledging that there might be some other factors involved when it comes to treatment outcomes and perhaps making the conversation more about the patients that we help rather than us or what we deem to be our own self-worth. Any thoughts to, to add on to that before we 
wrap up for some final takeaways. I think I've had enough of your voices, fellas. I was just nodding, but no one can hear that on a podcast. Hopefully we've clarified some misunderstandings and our own values. I think this was helpful as a reflection personally in terms of what I stand for and the kind of clinician that I want to be, the kind of coach and mentor that I want to be. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I think it's it's nice to always find some time to kind of come back to the why and the how and you know what really underpins what we do and to kind of jump on a call together and, and discuss these things and kind of pick them apart a little bit and, and think about, you know, what what parts are missing in your puzzle and in what you understand and how you understand it. And but yeah, laying it out on the table, I think this is the first time we've done that. And I think that's really nice. And hopefully, yeah, others find that helpful. And hopefully, you know, some things resonate with them and go, yeah, that, that aligns with mine. And maybe there's things that go, no, that doesn't align with my thoughts and view of the world. But that's the beauty of it is that we don't need that. But I think if we're open to sharing where we're coming from, then we can still have conversations. We can still discuss these ideas now from a real healthy point of view and from a place of curiosity. So hopefully that's what comes from this. And um, thanks for hosting, Dan. Just a little thought exercise that may help you come to some of your own clinical values. And this is purely a scenario and neither a right or wrong, but it might just help you reflect on where you're heading and, and maybe if you're even heading for something that you don't want, et cetera. So let's say you could change your charge out rate and you could see 20 people at $250 a session, or you could see 40 people at $125 a session. After a year of doing both of those scenarios, which one would make you happier? And I just want you to think about the type of people that may attract from a socioeconomic demographic, from a needs basis, from a, how many times they may choose to see you at those two different price points. Just reflect, there's no right or wrong, and I don't have a preference on either of those, just so the listeners are clear. A another one is for the practice owners, if you were guaranteed success, if your profit margin wasn't going to change, if nothing was gonna change, your team was to perform as they were today, which of the measures seems to give you the most grief in relation to your team's satisfaction and what would happen if you dropped them? That's a great note to end on and there are no right or wrong answers. It's just a helpful to reflect on where we're coming from and our own values. And hopefully this can facilitate some discussions as well. I think um, we're continually changing and that's another thing that I admire about us in terms of the courses starting off a few years ago now, when I attended my first biomechanics education course, the content was completely different to what it is now. And that's, I think, one of the things that we, we want to keep doing. We want to keep adapting and changing and staying humble, staying curious, keeping integrity. And that might look like different things in the future. But as long as we keep with the process, I feel like that's, that's the main thing. Absolutely. I've never run the same course twice in six years. So don't expect that to change anytime soon. It's because you forget hey, all Dan, the content. Do you reckon we can uh, <laughs> do you reckon we can swap Brendan out of these courses soon or what? I think so. I think so. I think hey, I'm like that leather right couch now. that you can't throw out. 
I'm, you know, part of the furniture now. We'll chuck out your dinosaur hands and replace it with my popping dancing skills. Yeah, no, you're right. That is impressive. If um, the listeners haven't seen Dan doing his popping, can uh, what's your uh, Insta page, Dan, where we can watch you do your popping? And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for... <laughs> you can also find Brendan on dragonballz.com. <laughs> uh, Dan, oh, yeah, thanks, thanks for hosting it, mate. Really appreciate it. And it's been fun having a chat with both of you.